Why do Baptists need bootleggers? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jeremy Horpadal. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jeremy Horpadal. Jeremy is the director of Acre and an associate professor of economics at the University of Central Arkansas. He received his PhD in economics from George Mason University in 2009, concentrating in public choice, public finance, and economic history. His research has been published in Econ Journal Watch, Constitutional Political Economy, The Atlantic Economic Journal, Public Choice, and Public Finance and Management. Jeremy has also published op-eds in a variety of regional and national publications, and prior to taking on the role of director of Acre, Jeremy has been a researcher with Acre since joining the UCA faculty in 2015. Jeremy, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. And it's great to have you on. So, Jeremy, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, why do Baptists need bootleggers? And those in the audience who aren't familiar with this concept will have fun finding out how this conversation will explore both the the figurative and the literal side of this model, actually. So it's going to be a, a fun time to chat with you about it. So l- let's start right at the top. So for, for those unfamiliar with this concept, I would like to start and have you walk us through the basics. You know, right right, right at the beginning, there was an essay written uh, by Bruce Yandel that coins this paradigm. At, at a high level, what is that establishing? What's the principle at work here we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so the uh, idea of bootleggers and Baptists, as you said, comes from a, a short article by Bruce Yandel, uh, published in Regulation Magazine, I think it was in 1981. Um and he was trying to, to explain why you get certain types of coalitions forming in politics, right? So coalition formation is something that political scientists have studied a lot. Economists have looked at it a little bit too. Um, but he was interested in a particular type of, of political coalition where you seem to have people coming together either that normally would have opposing interests or just seem to be kind of a random coalition. Like, why are these two people together? Um, and his idea of uh, the, the term bootleggers and Baptists comes from a kind of a, uh, I think, a, a folktale kind of from the South where he's from uh, that uh, in the South and actually throughout much of the United States, you had a lot of Sunday closing laws of various sorts. And, and a lot of those were, were especially about alcohol, that either you couldn't sell alcohol at all or you couldn't buy it at restaurants and things like that. And some of these still persist today in many U.S. states. Um, but what, what Gandel proposed is that uh, the, the Sunday closing laws are something that, of course, the Baptists like because the Baptists are either generally against alcohol consumption or at least want to have Sunday reserved as the Lord's Day. Um, but the bootleggers like it, too. Why do the bootleggers like it? Because the bootleggers are not law-abiding citizens. Uh, the bootleggers will sell alcohol 24-7, seven days a week uh, by having the uh, legal liquor stores closed on Sunday. This benefits the illegal market. So that the bootleggers and the Baptists uh, have a common interest here in in keeping liquor stores closed, at least in his parable, on Sundays. Um, Maybe, as we'll talk about with my paper, they might want it closed on many other days as well, um, uh, because they then both benefit. And and Yandel said this is an interesting coalition because you have two groups that seem like they wouldn't go together, right? What normally the Baptists and bootleggers wouldn't be seen together in in polite society. uh, but also, they have very different reasons for coming to this coalition, right? And this is where I think his uh, his his story of the bootleggers and Baptists can be applied to many other situations. Is that the Baptists are there in that coalition uh, because they have a a moral interest in that outcome, right? They want to save people's souls, or at least just you know reserve one day uh, where you, you can't buy alcohol and people spend time with family. Uh, so they have a moral interest in it. And then the bootleggers have a financial interest in it, right? They they are interested in making money. In fact, that's the whole reason they are a bootlegger. They they are they are not serving, uh, or at least in their mind, some greater social good. Of course, or as we know, though, market activity market activity does serve a greater social good, right? But but the bootleggers aren't thinking of it that way, right? The bootleggers right. are they want to make money, and and having liquor stores closed on Sunday, or maybe it was a Saturday too, or uh, you know, closed in the evenings. This will allow the bootleggers to sell more illegal booze. And it will benefit them financially. So the coalition then is composed of someone that has a moral interest, someone that has a financial interest, 
And then that's how I think we can go beyond Gandalf's kind of simple little tale. You know, we can argue whether that was ever actually a coalition uh, in the period he's talking about. Uh, but then this coalition, we can use that model or that that framework uh, to to think about uh, lots of other types of uh, political coalition coalitions we might identify. Great. No, thank you very much for that overview. I think that was great. So, so just to round it off there, basically, especially for those who might not have been familiar with this concept until you you kind of went through it there. I, I guess at the end of the day, is it fair to say that really, you know, the Baptists are sort of the people come from that moral perspective, the good public face, if you will, the people that are championing the, the quote good argument, if you will, why it's good that something happens, whereas the bootleggers are really the people uh, in any situation in this metaphor that really have th- their own vested interests at stake in one way or another. I mean, of course, you could argue that the Baptists have a vested interest in doing what they're doing, but I meant more of like that business interest or that commercial interest on the bootlegger side, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, the way we think about how this coalition might operate if they're trying to either convince the public that this policy is good or if they're trying to change policy in some way uh, is that the, the Baptists or, you know, the Baptists as the stand-in for any moral interest, uh, they will often be the public face of the coalition. Uh for maybe multiple reasons, but I think the clearest one is that the bootleggers just wouldn't be a good public face, right? They're 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 not law-abiding, and they're just in it for their own interest. They're not trying to benefit society. So if we think about, you know, anytime a law is proposed, whatever the law may be, uh, we you want to make an argument. This is good for society, right? That this is this is this is going to make everyone better off. Um, whereas the bootleggers would be a very bad public face because they are just in it for themselves. Um, and so I think that, you know, that that's a part of it. You might think on another, you know, slightly different angle, you know, why why would these two come together? Um, and it, it very much relates to the bootleggers being the financial interest, meaning they do have a lot of money to spend on it, right? The Baptist church might not have a lot of money uh, if the, if resources are needed, right? And for any law to pass, there are there is some aspect in which resources are needed. Uh, may not always be straight up just bribing politicians, right? But there's lots of Lots of aspects to a political coalition that would benefit from having more financial resources and the bootlegger, right? Why does the Baptist need the bootlegger? Like we'll, we'll explore this question more. But you know, one reason is that uh, the Baptist might not have the financial resources or, or political connections uh, that the bootleggers have. Uh, and so that's another reason why this is a, a coalition which which often comes together. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note, uh, again, especially for those that are just being introduced to this concept now that we talk about coalition and working together, I suppose that's that's almost like a summary of what happens too, right? It isn't literally that, you know, I mean, in some cases it might be, but it isn't literally that two groups get together in the same conference room and plan this stuff out. It just seems to be sort of a, a confluence of events that you have these two, uh, you know, odd couples, if you will, in, in certain cases and different factions happening to want the same end, but, you know, for completely different means and they might even go about it in different ways too. It isn't necessarily they need to be cooperating directly either. Yeah, that's right. They, they could be, and we'll maybe talk about some, some examples where they might be, uh, but they don't need to be. In fact, uh, the, the moral uh, uh, side of it, the Baptist side of it, might even disavow the bootleggers and say, hey, you know, right. we, we're, we happen to have the same position as them on this issue, but we want nothing to do with them, right? We, we, we do not... We normally would have nothing to do with them, and we're somewhat, you know, reticent to even be in this kind of coalition. But um, the the it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, you know, form a, uh, you know, an LLC as we have in the U.S. a corporation together and and you know lobby together. Uh, they might, but they don't. They don't actually need to, right? They as long as they're both kind of pushing on this um, in the same way that you know, you know, the U.S. doesn't often have coalition governments, but many many other countries do. You might have, you know. The right wing party mixing with the greens, right? Because that's enough to get you a majority, right? Um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be in agreement on on other things, and it doesn't necessarily mean they actually, you know, merge and form a a, a, a you know enduring entity together. But um, it just matters that they are both pushing for the same thing, and and the weight of them both pushing for this might be enough to get the law in place to keep it in place or to, to modify it in a way that benefits them. Mm-hmm. And before we get to some additional specific examples, I do want to explore uh, some of the 
you know, higher level economic concepts in this sort of Baptist and bootleggers model further. Cause I think it actually is a great way to explore like, you know, basically the, some basic economics through this concept. So, you know, for instance, in, in Yandel's essay, he, he essentially, you know, frames that if there, if there's folks that want something and those who can provide it, and here we're talking about regulation that you, ent- you, you ultimately have some sort of political economic market, right? And as he frames it, you have this demand side of regulation and supply side of regulation. I was wondering if you could sort of talk a bit to that. Um, and, and, you know, and like I said, I think it's a really great device to frame like this, you know, the, the economic thinking around this, because this isn't just pure politics. There's there's a market actually at play for regulation. So what does the demand side and the supply side um, uh, look like when we think of this model? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, another some kind of broader framework that fits in is what we often call public choice economics, something I think has come up a lot uh, on your podcast. I don't know if you've had anyone that, you know, spent the time just explaining what the concept is uh, in full. Uh, but this is, you know, public choice economics is a it's a field of economics. Uh, there's a journal called Public Choice. That's where my paper was published. Uh, but in, in short, it is the application of the economic way of thinking to politics and looking at, um, you know, people trying to maximize their benefits, looking at uh, trade-offs, looking at uh, uh, costs and benefits, looking at the supply and demand side of the political markets, as you said, uh, but using the tools of economics um, and, and then seeing where you know, in some cases, that might lead to similar conclusions that, uh, you know, standard political science might lead to, but in others, it might actually lead you to a, a very different way of thinking about it. So this idea of the supply side and the demand side for regulation, uh, right? So the, uh, the the demand side is, of course, the bootleggers and the Baptists, they want these regulations put in place, they want these laws to stay in place. Uh, but on the supply side, there are there are politicians uh, who who want to uh, do various things. Some of them, or they all would say that they want to make the world a better place, but they also want to stay in office. Staying in office requires having financial resources. It requires having, you know, multiple groups in society, you know, voting for you or supporting you in different ways. Um, so this is something where, you know, the bootleggers and Baptists, if they didn't have uh, someone willing to put these laws in place for them, uh, they they would be just kind of you know shouting into the wind. Um, it, it does require that there is kind of this market uh, in place in which they are able to you know express their demand for this regulation and and find someone willing to to supply it. So the you know the broader concept of uh, uh, public choice. This is definitely you know Yandel is certainly operating within that framework of taking the economic way of thinking and applying it to various different political. Uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk more about the idea of also like straight up bureaucratic incentives as well as something that we can like, you know, add as a factor to this discussion as people paint this picture in their head. And, and what I mean by that is that I think especially when we talk about, you know, public choice to some degree as the 101, we, we talk about everything you just said, as well as, you know, the demand for the regulation or more government action, the supply and politicians themselves want to like stay in office and make constituents happy to some degree and so on. And, and there's that sort of market play. But there's also these these huge bureaucracies in the background that almost have their own set of incentives as well, regardless of of many other things that have. So I was wondering if you talk about that, like, you know, because I, you know, for instance, like a self-sustaining bureaucracy is what people often, you know, joke about, you know, these people are making jobs for themselves, they go along. But I think that seems to be true when you actually get into the facts of the matter as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so within the, you know, framework of public choice, there have been a number of scholars that have focused on this question of, of how do bureaucracies operate, right? A lot of public choice is about how do voters behave, how do politicians behave, but there's also you know, a large, you know, bureaucracy, which in the U.S. and Canada and other countries just, you know, it exists regardless of which party's in power. And it's it's very, very durable. So, you know, what are the incentives of the people that are in that, you know, what you might call the civil service or the bureaucracy? Uh, what are they trying to maximize, right? This is how an economist would always approach it. They must be trying to maximize something. Are they trying to maximize their income? Are they trying to, you know, maximize their, you know, leisure time at work so that their job is just enjoyable, right? Are they, are they trying to maximize power, right? There are all sorts of things that that, that bureaucrats might try to maximize. Um, so that's that's going to certainly be a part of this too. I think, you know, once you have agencies established that are going to be uh, regulating, you know, in the in Yandel's example, alcohol, right? Th- those bureaucracies are going to want to stay in power and and continue to maintain that power. And so they might, you know, then be another part of this coalition in a sense, right? That they uh, they are appreciative of the bootleggers and Baptists uh, trying to, 
uh, prevent these laws, say, from being repealed, uh, because that then allows the bureaucracy to continue to have uh, the power and resources for it to operate. And again, the, the bureaucrats, you know, they may think that they are also doing a, a good for the world, right? They might be a, a kind of Baptist uh, and that they think what they're doing is good for society uh, or, or just merely upholding the law is good for society. Uh, so, so that's kind of how I think the bureaucracy might fit into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe there's another mini paradigm of Baptists and bootleggers in the bureaucracy too, right? You have some well-meaning champions, but also some people that just want to be the director of whatever department as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah the three Bs: bootleggers, Baptists, and bureaucrats. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more sort of key idea I want to explore at a conceptual level before we jump into some of your specific work on this too, and it's just because I find that, at least in my experience, when people start learning about things like public choice and the kind of things we were uh, thinking about to start. Often when uh, the discussion of the business community comes up, people sort of hold that constant as this community of people um, that, you know, um, any kind of regulation or any kind of increased cost, like they're just repelled by it. But it, but it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, in, in your essay that I read, um, you make that point. Uh, Yandel makes that point in his original essay. Um, I, I guess ultimately what I'm trying to say is a lot of people mistake costs as being so straightforward of a thing, like any dollar or cent, uh, you know, sort of change on a balance sheet of a company, they immediately don't like the regulation. But it does seem that businesses do consider sort of more macro threats as well to their well-being, you know, whether it's a trade deal or whatever else and so on. And they're very much more aware of what's beyond the balance sheet. And it, it seems in some cases they will trade higher micro costs, if you will, for, you know, more macro defense against, you know, threats to their technology or more competition or whatever else. Am I getting that right, though, is that you have to think of of the people that are actually being regulated with a wider lens, I guess is what I'm trying to say, than simply, oh, the, you know, they don't want that regulation. Well, maybe they do, but for a different reason. So it seems to be a little more complex when it comes to the regulated uh, as being just against regulation. No, you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, the, the idea that businesses don't like regulation, uh, we can see all sorts of cases where that's not true. Uh, so we might think about why do they in particular cases like it? Um, one of the dynamics we see here, and this comes up in some of the bootlegger and Baptist uh, examples, uh, is that you might have different types of businesses, right? Say, just as a simple example, you might have small and large businesses, right? Um, and, and if the large businesses are able to to you know, more easily absorb, say, the regulatory costs, uh, they might be in favor of it because it hurts their rivals, right? It might hurt their smaller rivals who may not be able to uh, absorb those as easily, especially if it's kind of a, a, a fixed cost, right? If there's a fixed cost of regulation, the larger the firm is, the more easily they'll be able to absorb that cost. So a firm might be in favor of regulation of its own industry uh, if they think it'll benefit them versus current or potential future competitors. Uh, there's also the possibility of, uh, in public choice economics, we talk about regulatory capture, uh, which is even if the uh, regulations were not originally set by the business, maybe they really were actually opposed to them. Uh, over time, they're able to capture the regulatory process and and steer it in a way that benefits them, right? That, that the, uh, the regulators will end up uh, in, in various ways, and it could be through corruption, but it could, it could just be... Uh, just as a matter of that's the easy easy thing to do for a bureaucrat is to make things easier for uh, the regulated ones. Just take a, a major example in the United States. Uh, we've we've had uh, uh, two kind of periods of regulation in uh, airline history. Uh, one that goes from the beginning of the industry up till about 1980, and then the period since 1980 is is totally different. Uh, what's different is before 1980, uh, the uh, Civil Aeronautics Board, the regulatory agency set the prices that you could charge and they told airlines what routes they could fly. And it was very strictly regulated. Uh, a typical route would rarely have more than three airlines flying and many of them just had one. Um, and they would tell you exactly what, what price you could charge and it wasn't like a price ceiling. Uh, you, could, you couldn't charge below it either. You couldn't raise or lower your price. Um, the, the existing airlines, you think, well, they, they wouldn't like this. Businesses like to set their prices and choose where to go. And while that is true, over time, the airlines that were in the industry came to operate well in this environment. And we're actually doing, most of them were doing quite well. And many airlines were very much opposed to the deregulation that happens in the late 1970s uh, because they knew that this kind of breaks down their way of doing business, right? That they, at, at the time, they would, they would focus very much on providing like the best service, serving the best food, having the most comfortable seats because uh, you couldn't compete on price. So you compete on other things. 
and they got very much used to this. And, and that meant that they actually ended up, the businesses that survived under that regulatory environment ended up liking that regulatory environment. Uh, in that case, they were not able to stop deregulation. Uh, but uh, we, we only see that because it, it did happen. In many cases, deregulation does not happen because the industry uh, very much likes the way they're currently operating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you said there, there was two two examples, though. I just, maybe I just misunderstood what you're saying, but the airlines is one, and then there was another one, or, or did I mishear you? I apologize. Oh, um, I mean, the other one that goes along with that is is the trucking industry, which is which is regulated in the United States, very similar to airline, and that the the prices and the routes were 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 set by a regulatory agency, and it was deregulated right around the same time in the late nineteen uh, seventies. Oh, okay. So yeah, a very similar type of thing where uh, the companies that existed, at least most of them, didn't want things to change, uh, but there was enough political pressure, uh, as well as some companies that wanted to change that, that you did get deregulation in those two cases. Right. Seems like a story that keeps repeating itself at one point, trains, next time trucks, then airplanes. <laughs> it's a never ending yeah. story. No, I mean, the, the, the original example of regulatory capture is actually the, uh, the regulation of railroads. That was the first major federal regulation in the United States. And the Interstate Commerce Commission was very quickly captured by, by the existing railroads, even though it was set up to regulate them, and they ended up liking it. And then that kind of continues with trucks and trains and everything after. <laughs> right. And it, it's a little early yet, but I'm actually going to take our break right here because I was just about to dive into your, your work on all this, uh, you know, and we can explore these concepts further through your work. But I think it's a good point to put the post here. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, we're taking a break. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jeremy Horpadal today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Peter Jaworski, and Yakov Mikhailovich. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking to Jeremy Horpital today. So, Jeremy, I think the first half was great. We explored the, the bootleggers and Baptist concept and paradigm. We talked about public choice as well. I think we painted a really good, you know, conceptual overview of the kinds of things we're talking about here today and really what the, the Baptist and bootleggers discussion really entails. Now, I want to get into some of your work on this topic and, and things that have leveraged and leaned into this model. So, um, you know, I, I've read one in preparation for our conversation today. So you, you do have a couple of case studies for us on this issue. Uh, actually, now back to the literal part of the uh, the metaphor we've been talking about, specifically in Arkansas around alcohol regulations. So before we get into, again, uh, all the specifics, uh, I want to zoom back out and start with some context. So um, one thing that kind of was a nice sentence that caught my eye in the art, one of the articles you wrote about your um, your piece, uh, this was in Cato, uh, you said that it's crucial to understand, uh, in order to understand your work and your findings on this, it's crucial to understand what happened regulation-wise after the repeal of the 21st Amendment, the one that banned alcohol sale constitutionally. Um, so can you give us that context, specifically in Arkansas? So, you know, we're at the point in history, if we cast our minds back, we're repealing the 21st Amendment, you know, it's no longer unconstitutional to uh, sell alcohol. How does that affect states and jurisdictions? What sort of playing field opens after that, if you could paint that picture for us? No, absolutely. And I think this, this is a great place to start because for, for any bootlegger and Baptist example, the context is really important, right? Like, I'm trying to understand why, you know, in other examples are, are things like, you know, um, uh, uh, environmental groups and certain types of, of coal producer, coal power plants would come together and like, why would they come together? Well, you need to understand the context of the particular situation. So with alcohol regulation in the United States, of course, I'm sure even your listeners in Canada know that for a period of time in the United States, alcohol production and sales were illegal. That was from 1920 to about 1933 uh, in the United States. Um, Consumption was never illegal, but basically every every commercial aspect of, of alcohol what was illegal in the United States. Uh, this was then repealed by the 21st Amendment. Um, and what that did, though, is that uh, the 21st Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution didn't merely just repeal uh, the, the prior amendment, which banned it. It also gave the states uh, a bit more power to set up their own regulatory structure of alcohol. Now, even before national prohibition in the United States, 
states had regulations and many states had banned alcohol sales even before national prohibition. Uh, but this, the, the 21st Amendment gave the states a bit more power to kind of enforce the laws within their own borders about how they want to regulate alcohol. So what this did then, of course, is it, it, it set a situation where, uh, you know, every state could do what they wanted. Some states, uh, like Mississippi, which borders Arkansas, they went right back to prohibition. Um, in Arkansas, for, for reasons which are not always clear when you read the history, Arkansas did not decide to go back to that. Arkansas kind of went back to something they had done before national prohibition, which is they left it up to counties. Uh, but Arkansas set the default uh, of it being legal, but then said counties, if they wanted, could hold local elections to ban it in their own county. Uh, and, and many other states did it this way as well in the South, uh, which is why even to this day, for many states in the South, you've got kind of a patchwork of alcohol regulation, uh, including bans of it in certain cities or counties throughout most southern states in the United States. Um, the trend over the last uh, you know, 40, 50 years has been towards liberalization, towards legalizing sales. Uh, but you still do have a lot of areas in the South um, where there are a lot of, of areas where alcohol sales are illegal in, in some in some sense. Um, so Arkansas, the context there is that they leave it up to counties to decide. Um, and there's, you know, rules written about how you run these elections, right? How, how if a county wants to do it, uh, what, how many votes do they need? What percent uh, of the population do they need uh, to gather signatures, to put it on the ballot? Um, there, there's various rules about this. Uh, what essentially happens in Arkansas right away is they set the threshold for collecting signatures very high and no one gets it on the ballot. Um, so that for about close to a decade in Arkansas, after repeal of national prohibition, you have alcohol sales legal throughout the state, uh, even though many other states, like our neighbor in Mississippi, had, had banned sales of it. Uh, then the important historical fact of World War II comes up. Uh, and during World War II, uh, the important thing with regards to alcohol regulation is that many of the men are gone. They're off fighting the war. And the women are left, and and historically in the U.S., women have been generally more in favor of regulating or banning alcohol than men. Uh, and what happens during that time period is, first of all, Arkansas changes its rule. So there's another kind of public choice concept. If you change the rules, you're going to get different outcomes. Mm. Um, and so they change the rule about how many signatures are needed to get on the ballot. Uh, at, and they do that during World War II. And then during World War II, uh, many counties in Arkansas hold those elections. And most of the voters that show up are women, not men, because uh, the men are off fighting the war. And so you get uh, during World War II and immediately after it, uh, over half of the counties in Arkansas make alcohol sales illegal, essentially returning to the prohibition. Um, so uh, once you get past the 1940s, you've got over half of the counties in Arkansas and there are 75 uh, banning alcohol sales and, and many other. Then you get kind of the same patchwork you have in states like Mississippi and Alabama and Texas, even Texas used to have a lot of dry counties. They don't have so many today. Um, so you had a lot of Oklahoma, um, Kansas, all these states in, in the South and, and kind of uh, uh, West and kind of Midwest states in the South are, are banning alcohol sales. Mm -hmm. and, and I suppose the, the uh, that's interesting into it, unto itself, but I suppose really interesting stuff starts happening when discussions come up about if this is going to be overturned, if certain counties are going to go wet as opposed to dry again, right? Like I think... Um, like uh, this is where the, the Baptist and bootlegger sort of paradigm kicks into play, if I understand what I was reading correctly from your end. Yeah, absolutely. So then, you know, fast forward a bit in history um, to to the uh, 1990s and, and 2000s. You're now kind of at a place in, where you have a really, you know, I described it as a patchwork and it really is. You have, you know, lots. If you look at the map, it's like every other county was either had alcohol sales legal or didn't. Uh, what you then get is you get a lot of liquor stores. Uh, that would locate in this county where it's legal, but well, they're going to set up right on the border. They're going to set up right on the border uh, to to serve the customers uh, in the county where the sales are illegal because uh, consumption of alcohol was never illegal. It was just the retail sales of it. Um, uh, so you get a lot of uh, liquor stores that set up at the county line. Um, and then once they're established there, uh, just like just like the airlines and just like the railroads, they end up liking that regulatory structure. So the so the the key bootlegger in in the example that I talk about is the liquor stores that are in counties where it's legal to sell, but they're very near to the county border. Um, and if you would you know kind of look at the map of where they are, there's really no reason 
for many, most of them to be at that place. It's not a population center, right? They're, right. they're at the county border. It's, it's in like a very rural area. Um, you even get this uh, at, at some for if you have counties on the state board that are on the state border. Uh, you have so for many counties on the northern Arkansas border is Missouri to the north, uh, or Missouri is to the north of Arkansas. And you had many dry counties along the border. Um, and you even have stores right when you get to the Missouri line that are selling uh, alcohol. Uh, so you have all these liquor stores now that have set up business. They've invested resources. Uh, another important context about Arkansas is that we have a, a another law that requires or, or that prohibits people from owning more than one liquor store. These are all small, like family operations, essentially. This is, uh, you know, if you're going to be in the liquor business, you can't have chain stores like you have in much of the United States. Right. Uh, even, you know, uh, you know. Course, we have lots of Walmarts in Arkansas. That's where Arkansas Walmart is based, but only one Walmart in the entire state is allowed to sell alcohol. Like, uh, there's no chains. So, these are locations which are very uh, small operations. And it might be the family's only source of income. They're located right on the, on the county border or state border, if they're in Missouri. Uh, and they have a very strong interest in the neighboring county not changing uh, what the uh, outcome is. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned during World War II, they lowered that threshold of the number of signatures you need to put something on the ballot. That was then subsequently raised up to a very high level. Uh, it's raised up to uh, currently, uh, this was set in 1993, uh, you need 38% of the registered voters uh, to sign a petition to get it on the ballot. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if I don't know how much of this there is in Canada. I think the U.S. actually has quite a bit of this, but it's very different every state of, of gathering signatures to get things on the ballot to amend the state constitution, you know, to recall a governor, right? Like there's all these things in, in U.S. states you can do to uh, put things on the ballot and have direct democracy rather than representative democracy. Most of them are going to require five or 10% of the voters to sign the petition to get it on the ballot. Uh, for alcohol, uh, changing alcohol regulation in Arkansas, you need 38% which is an extremely high threshold. Um, and then this is where the then coalition forms is around that question of should counties change their status from alcohol sales being illegal to alcohol sales being legal. Um, so this is kind of a little bit different than a lot of the bootlegger and Baptist examples we've talked about, because it's not actually about um, convincing uh, a politician to propose a bill and then get people to vote on it. Uh, this is about getting something on the ballot and allowing people to vote on it mm. uh, directly, rather than in in a you know a legislature. Right. Um, so then, what happens then is uh, the uh, of course existing liquor stores don't want sales to be legalized, uh, but if someone is trying to collect signatures in, in a currently what we call a dry county where sales are illegal, uh, what they're going to do then is uh, try to prevent that from happening. Uh, but how are you going to do that, right? How are you going to prevent uh, someone from collecting signatures? Uh, there's a number of things you can do, but importantly for all of them, money is needed. Uh, so the churches that are in these counties where alcohol sales are illegal, they they want to keep it that way too, right? So then enter the Baptists, which you know here is the literal example because in Arkansas, uh, Baptists are the dominant religion. So it's not just a metaphor here. Uh, you actually do have Baptist church. Baptist churches that are opposed to these legalization efforts, uh, they then have a common interest with the liquor stores in the next county uh, because they both want the status quo to remain, which is that the, the liquor store wants to be able to keep selling to the people in the other county and the uh, uh, churches just, they want to just keep it illegal, right? We're not even right. talking Sunday sales here. We're talking no sales any day of the week. Uh, so that's going to then be the common interest they have uh, in trying to prevent these elections from happening and prevent counties from switching from what we call dry to then wet counties where sales are legal. Mm -hmm. And so I guess then a county, if you will, of people that might very well want to vote on this, there's like pressure sort of from inside the county, from the Baptists who are in this case, actual Baptists, and then outside the county in a neighboring county, more likely, as you were saying, business interests, which are in this case are bootleggers. So there's a bit of that like sort of pincer effect of, it's not even getting on the ballot at that point, right? I, and I think you're writing about like campaigns are run in this case, money is raised, like this becomes a whole thing actually, right? Yeah, um, you know, to, to get something on the ballot uh, does cost a lot of money. Uh, you know, it's 
collecting the signatures of 38% of the registered voters in a, in a kind of a narrow window that they give you uh, is actually a very expensive thing to do. I mentioned a lot of states, you know, have various ways you can get things on the ballot. What most groups do now is they just pay people to collect signatures, right? If if I, you know, want to get whatever done, I want to amend the constitution to, you know, make, you know, to ban abortion or make marijuana illegal, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, there are groups that you can just pay to collect signatures. Um, and this is allowed. It's, it's totally legal. Most states have some guardrails on it. Um, but uh, that's one of the main costs of if you want to make something legal, uh, you got to you got to spend money to do it. Right. So first of all, for this to even change, you'd have to have someone willing to vote to vote you know, either a lot of their personal time or just a lot of resources to get it legalized. But there's a lot of money that can then be spent on the other side as well. Um, so one might be just try to discourage people uh, from doing it. So this is actually one where I think that the churches often pay, play a big role in trying to discourage people uh, either directly through their own congregation or more or more often they're going to do it through taking out advertisements in you know newspapers and putting up billboards and trying to convince people not to sign these petitions uh, so that they will not get on the ballot. Um, that's one way you could do it. Uh, the other way, though, to try to prevent this from happening is through the legal process by actually suing the groups in, for various reasons that are collecting the signatures uh, or in, in court challenging the signatures to see if they're valid. Uh, this happens actually quite a bit in, in all these states that do this sort of thing. You know, if, if you kind of lose in the sense that, you know, it gets on the ballot, then we'll challenge the signatures. And maybe some of these were not valid. Maybe the people weren't actually living in the county. Maybe someone's forging signatures. And, and judges will often throw out a large number of the signatures just because, you know, I mean, people are collecting these all the time. There's going to be errors. You know, sometimes they're honest errors. Sometimes they're, you know, they're making up names or duplicating names. Sometimes it's you're not meeting the technical rules about, you know, how what the margins of the page should be. But there are all sorts of ways you can get these thrown out. Uh, but as we know, uh, bringing lawsuits and taking things to court, that cost that takes a lot of financial resources. Right. So. Uh, the, the kind of two main things that these coalitions might spend money on are advertising to try to discourage people from signing the petition. Uh, you could later then try to advertise to discourage people from voting for it once it gets on the ballot. Mm. Uh, but usually it's done at the level of trying to prevent it from even getting on the ballot. Um, and then you could spend money on uh, the legal costs of trying to uh, prevent them from collecting signatures or to challenge the signatures once they've been collected. Mm. And... Uh, the, obviously there's there might be well there might be some exceptions i'll ask you in a sec if i'm even correct about that but i, I suppose is, is the general uh scoreboard um in arkansas that the the coalition of baptists and bootleggers is indeed successful uh, have there been some exception ca cases where they were not successful or is this mostly that that's how the show's running and and it's really hard to get past that coalition <laughs> so it, it's really hard to get past the coalition when it does form so in, in the examples i've looked at uh you've got about a dozen examples where the coalition was able to stop it from getting on the ballot, about a dozen counties where it was tried, someone formed a committee to collect signatures and they were stopped. Either they didn't collect enough or enough were thrown out that they didn't get on the ballot. And they got about a dozen where it actually was successful. In almost all those cases though, where it was successful, uh, there was no bootlegger in the coalition. Hmm. And, and the way we know this, I mean, some of this you might think is done behind the scenes. How would you ever know? Arkansas has very strong disclosure laws about who's contributing to particular uh, causes to try to either support or defeat something from getting on the ballot or from voting on it. Uh, so I was able to get all the records of who donated to these committees that are opposing legalization. Um, and in, in some cases, you get both um, uh, liquor stores and churches donating to the groups. In most cases, though, it's the, the the churches are giving very you know nominal amounts, you know maybe you know one or two percent of the total amount, and the money is coming mostly from liquor stores. Um, in almost all the cases, though, where these drives are successful to legalize alcohol sales, you didn't have a bootlegger that was contributing to it for some reason. So when the Baptists go alone, I think this this shows the kind of the power of the theory. Mm -hmm. uh, when the Baptists try to go it alone, they are usually not able to stop the uh, the signatures from being collected. And as you might imagine, if 38% of the registered voters have signed a petition, it's probably going to pass when it comes up to vote. You've got, right. you've got basically enough people that have signed it, you know, because turnout's never 100% anyway, right? You've got enough people that have signed it. If they all show up to vote, it's going to pass. And, mm. and every single time in Arkansas, 
at least uh, you know, since uh, the 1990s, every single time it's been on the ballot in the county, it's passed. But that's because the signature threshold is so high. So the real action then that I focus on the paper is the before it gets to the ballot. Once it gets to the ballot, it's a done deal. Um, but so the, the strength of the coalition is if they're able to stop it uh, from getting on the ballot, that's, that's their best bet. And I think they've learned this uh, over time. Uh, and, but the, the key for the coalition to be successful is that there is both a bootlegger who can provide financial resources and there is a Baptist who can then provide the kind of moral argument for, for why, this is, uh, why this should be done. Or not, or not done in this case. Right. And back to our point, I think we touched on it earlier in the first half where we said that, you know, and even outwardly, they could talk about completely different means, these groups, and uh, different reasons of what, why they want this and even like disassociate from each other. I think I remember reading one of the things you were writing there, like there's at least one case study where there was some bit of a public sort of PR scrum where one group wanted to make it very clear that, yeah, yeah, we want the same end, but but uh, but we, we don't want to be associated with these people. And we're actually sorry if anyone thought we were associated so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah, that does happen from time to time. In fact, I think in the case you're referring to, uh, both the uh, uh, a church and the, this coalition of liquor stores had filed a lawsuit. And the judge said, well, they're asking for the same thing, so we're going to merge the lawsuits, right. right? This is often done, right? You, you both want the same thing. We don't need to have two separate lawsuits. Uh, and the church, they came out in the newspaper and said, hey, you know, we want nothing to do with these guys, but I guess we want the same thing in this case. But we, we're We'll, we'll go along because the judge said this is what we have to do, but we, we don't like it. We would we want to fight this on our own. And they very much came out and said that like they you know, when it is apparent publicly that there uh, that there is this coalition, the churches will often you know disavow and say, no, we 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 we're sorry we have to do this. But this is, you know, this is the only way, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And it was very interesting for them to say, like, we do want the exact same thing. But don't put us yeah. on the same team. It's just it's different reasons, okay? It's pretty yeah. funny to actually read that, like pretty much literally yeah. what some of these groups say, right? Yeah. Although you know, there are other cases um, where, uh, in some cases, some church leaders have have said we're fine with being in these coalitions. There's one uh, a minister that actually said, you know, he said I've teamed up with you know casinos in Mississippi to fight casinos in Arkansas. I've teamed up with feminists to fight you know legalizing you know pornography, like. I'm happy to be these coalitions. So sometimes so some of them say, hey, we're going to be open about it. But usually they don't like to be, right? Usually right. this is not, you know, uh, you know, saying, hey, I'm behaving strategically to, to, you know, partner with, in this case, the very thing you're trying to prevent, right? You're trying to prevent alcohol sales. So I'm going to team up with someone who sells alcohol. Usually you would not want to admit that openly. But uh, I, there was this one case where a particular minister did openly admit it, which was which was unusual. Right. And on another point, it's very interesting, especially as we were discussing these kind of things that, it, you know, to talk about, you know, um, I, I, well, I mean, as you said, once this stuff gets on the ballot, it's almost like a sure thing that you know, whatever is being voted on, is gonna, you know, it will become, for instance, a wet county, for example, in this specific case study. But b- before all that action happens and it actually goes on a ballot, as you said, the action's there. And it's very interesting because some people tend to think in these types of cases, well, what's the general public doing in that before time action? And I guess it just goes to show, you know, if if the general public um, is ultimately either uh, apathetic on an issue or most of the people can't be bothered to organize or there's too many costs of doing so from an economic perspective. And, you know, r- really, it, it, it does come down to, I suppose, you know, the concentrated coalition of interests gets one thing done or at least fights about it over here. But then you have like a dispersed audience that essentially watches because if they're not organizing, even in that pre-game stuff, if you will... There's no real room for the general public unless they somehow get organized as a, a coalition of concerned citizens or something. So it seems to be very much like a a very vested interest group driven thing at the very beginning part, which goes back to public choice discussions as well, I suppose. No, that's absolutely right. You know, even if you know, it's hard to know. There's, there's very rarely county level polling about this particular issue. But, you know, even if you knew in a county, say, you know, two thirds of the people want to do this. They, no one has an incentive to organize unless you like really passionately cared about legalizing alcohol sales. There's no you know financial interest for anyone to do this in most cases. Uh, but what I observed in in Arkansas is that there ended up, did end up being a financial interest that often pushed for these legalization efforts, uh, and that was places like Walmart. So Walmart has actually funded a number of the attempts to legalize alcohol sales uh, because they actually so they are organized and they do have a financial interest in legalizing this because if you think about you know, in Arkansas, I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess there's at least one Walmart in every county in Arkansas. Uh, they're already there. They've got the shelf space. They got coolers. They're selling milk and, and you know, other things. 
they would love to put some beer in there, right? And, and right. sell beer as well. Um, but they're not able to because, you know, I keep, we keep saying liquor, but it's not just liquor. It's, it's all alcohol, right? Wine, beer, everything, all prohibited. Um, they would like to be able to, to sell, you know, beer and wine at the local Walmart. So, so Walmart and others, so, you know, several chains of gas stations that would sell, you know, beer to go as well if they were able to. They have actually been the financial interest that has been driving, uh, in many cases, funding the legalization efforts. They have not always been successful, um, but they're kind of the financial interest that can be the counterweight to the financial interest of the bootleggers. Uh, but without that, you know, without a financial interest, you know, organizing this, it just has to be citizens that are just, you know, interested in this happening, right? Uh, because there there are no liquor stores, right? So we distinguish between liquor and wine beer. You know, in Arkansas and many states, this, there's a, there's separate stores that just sell liquor, right? right. So beer and wine could be at a grocery store, gas station, but to sell hard liquor, uh, there are special stores that do that. In, in most states, you need a separate license to do that. So there are no liquor stores at all in these counties. Uh, there, there's no one that could sell it. you got to build a brand new store, right? But there are grocery stores and gas stations that might like to sell beer or wine. Right. And they often end up being the financial interest that will fund uh, the legalization efforts. Uh, I mean, even in the county where Walmart is headquartered, that used to be a dry county until, I think, 2010. Um, and it was, in that case, it was members of the of the of the Walton family that owns Walmart, they personally funded it uh, because they, I guess, I guess in that case, if you're really rich and you care about an issue, you can, you can fund it yourself. Right. right? But, yeah. but there's not a, there's not a Walton family member in each of the 75 counties of Arkansas. So in some cases it was the, the corporation itself uh, that was, was interested in, in legalizing the sales and they were not successful in every petition drive that they funded, but they were successful in some of them. Uh, in recent years, they've kind of backed off doing that. I'm not exactly sure why, Anyone from Walmart corporate wants to call me and tell me, I'd love to know, but they seem to have backed off doing that. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, the county I live in is Dry County, uh, Faulkner County, uh, Arkansas. It's, I, I've done some calculations. I think it's the largest dry county by population in the country. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, 120,000 people. Uh, but Walmart did fund in 2014 a, a drive to legalize alcohol sales in, in this county, and it was not successful. They, they just, even with Walmart money, they... At some point, they just gave up. They said, we were not able to collect enough signatures. It's just so expensive. And they kind of focused on a different county where they were right. working at the same time. Well, that's a great case study, right? I mean, if the Baptist and bootleggers get going, as we've been saying, even the Walmart money can't help that much, apparently. Yeah, I mean, three or four small family liquor stores can defeat Walmart. It's yeah, <laughs> there you go. It's a, 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 definitely, there's a there's a good moral there to be learned. Um, and, and I'll say, like, I'll, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Jeremy, but anybody who lives in on the province of Ontario in Canada, everything you're just saying right now, they're having like flashbacks because there's a very similar situation up here that is just busts through right now. With you know, we had separate beer store, separate liquor store, and mm-hmm. just recently, some of that those types of sales have just been allowed to happen in, in grocery stores and things like that. So it's actually very very similar. It's very interesting to hear mm-hmm. about this and learn this from you. Um, and with that, our time is actually winding down right now. So I want to actually move us on to the, the formal wrap up so we can cap off the episode here. And, and Jeremy, in, in each episode, I want the guests to ultimately have the last word to bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So, so let me ask you what is really the, the, the final formal question. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why Baptists need bootleggers and vice versa as well, of course, in, in the literal or the figurative. In, in other words, if you want those listening to us here today to take away one, two, or just a few things, if anything, from all the things you've explored with us today, what would that takeaway be? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway as I think about this is that uh, these are very successful and durable coalitions, as Bruce Yandel described them, uh, because they they each serve each of the the parties of these coalitions serve a very important part of the political process, right? Money is needed to do things, but also a good story is needed to do things politically. And these coalitions serve that so effectively. I mean, those are essentially the two things you need to get to get things done politically, is you need to convince the public this is a good idea, but you also need money, right? Having one or the other is usually not enough. And I think that the thing, broader thing we can take away from this, since you know many of your listeners will probably never visit Arkansas. I mean, please come; it's a beautiful state. But you know, why do we care about this Arkansas example? Uh, I think that you know these. The, the more you think about this, the more you see that this shows up in many, many areas of law and regulation. Uh, and, and it's in fact, the more you think about it, the harder it is to find examples where there isn't at least some identifiable bootlegger and Baptist 
Uh, maybe the coalitions aren't always as you know strange as liquor stores and churches, um, but this almost always is true. Uh, and so I think both for you know people studying the political process and just for ordinary citizens, I think we need to try to you know in many cases look past the Baptist, right? Look past the moral argument and see who really benefits from this, right? And just because someone benefits financially doesn't mean a law is bad. I mean, someone will benefit financially from any change in law. But we need to look at, you know, what are the underlying costs and benefits to society of this? And, of course, the moral argument to it is a, is a, a cost or benefit, right? Um, that's, a, that's a piece of it. But I think often we tend to focus just on that. Uh, or sometimes people go the complete opposite direction and say, ah, if someone is paying for this, it must be bad, right? Someone benefits. Well, someone's going to benefit from any change in law. People are going to pay for it. But we need to kind of look at both parts of the coalition, but but don't just listen to the Baptists, right? I'm not saying ignore them, but but we can't just listen to why is this good for society? Look at who's going to benefit, who stands to lose. And often, as you said, the concentrated benefits, right? So large corporations or people that have a, a financial stake in a particular area, they will often be the concentrated interest. They will speak the loudest um, about being harmed by it financially or benefit from it. Uh, but the then dispersed, you know, voters in general, the population in general, we need to look at how laws affect them, uh, not just whether it sounds good or whether it hurts or harms one particular uh, interest. Mm. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So, Jeremy Horpadal, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. I enjoyed it. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.